you, Pastor Henry. Today's scripture passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you should turn to page 954, 955. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's inerrant word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And pray for us once more. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for this word that was just read. Now we seek to preach it, and we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to come to accompany the right preaching of your word that hearts might be softened and responsive to your commands, that we might be attentive to your warnings and that we might be open to receive your promises, all found here in your word. We pray all this for your glory and our good and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, the first century church in Corinth was certainly troubled. We've been looking at this church for the past few weeks, and we've seen that factions had been forming, pitting members of the church against themselves. And the underlying cause, as we've seen in the past few weeks, has been pride. It's been spiritual arrogance among the people. The specific occasions where this pride manifested itself, leading to greater division, well, it was numerous, it was varied. Sometimes the occasion related to sharing a meal at a pagan temple. That's found in chapter 8. Or it's about sharing the Lord's Supper in church. That's addressed in chapter 11. Or it had to do with the exercise of spiritual gifts in a corporate worship setting. That's chapters 12 to 14. Or the occasion where this division occurred had to do with lawsuits filed against each other in the church. And that's what our chapter 
is all about, chapter six. Friends, lawsuits in that time and culture, you have to understand, were never a merely private affair. In first century Greco-Roman society, there was a clear class structure where you had a master and all of his slaves, or you had a patron and all of his clients. And you had really no right to sue someone that was socially superior to you. You could only really sue a social equal or someone that was socially below you. And so most lawsuits in those days, you have to understand, were initiated by people, people of a higher social class. And so just imagine a situation within the Corinthian church. Just imagine a legal dispute between two men in the church, and if either one of those men happens to be a patron, well, then that socially obligates any of his clients who as well happen to be in the church to now side with him in this dispute, whether they want to be involved or not, whether they agree with their patron or not, they are now obligated to take sides. And so any kind of personal legal dispute between two church members would typically result in greater division, involving more church members and then pulling them apart from each other. So that, my friends, is how a passage like this on lawsuits between church members would fit into the larger context that we've already been seeing, that this is all about greater factioning and, and division among the church, the church members in Corinth. Now, obviously for us in our day, we don't have a patron-client relationship, that kind of class structure within the church, but that doesn't make anything better in our situation. In fact, you could argue that things are worse for us because we live in a highly litigious age, meaning that we are overly prone to rely on the legal system in order to settle any disputes. Lawsuits are so common that many Christians don't even think twice about turning to secular courts in order to sue each other. Instead of turning to the church, instead of looking for wise, discerning counselors and mediators from within the congregation, relying on, on the so resources that we have as Christians in order to resolve conflict, instead of doing that, no, we, we shamelessly air out our disputes before the watching world. It's kind of like an episode of, of Judge Judy. Have you ever seen Judge Judy? If you watch that show, you come away thinking, man, these people are crazy, right? I mean, what are they arguing about? It's so trivial. It's so ridiculous. It's so comical that, that this must be staged, right? That this can't be like reality TV, right? This must be, you know, all scripted. Well, the point of our passage the point of our passage is that that is what the world is saying about the church when they see Christians going to court to settle our personal disputes. Are you guys for real? Are you serious? This, this must be staged, right? I thought you were the church. This is what you're doing? It was the late Supreme Court Justice Anthony Scalia commenting on the litigious nature of modern society who once said this, quote, I think we are too ready today to seek vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Now, as a devout Catholic, 
Scalia, I'm sure, would have been familiar with 1 Corinthians 6, and he was certainly appealing to the spirit behind our text. We are too quick to try to prove ourselves right. We, we are too quick to seek to be vindicated, to, to get what we think we're due. Friends, this spirit of vindication and vengeance, it doesn't seem to match the message of reconciliation that we have been entrusted with as ambassadors for Christ. That's how Paul describes us in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. You are ambassadors for Christ sent out into the world with a message of reconciliation. Our king, who, who by the way, laid, laid aside his own rights for our sake, he was wrongly suffered, he wrongly suffered injustice for us. He's the one who commissioned us to proclaim a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And yet, to have lawsuits between us, to have lawsuits with one another would suggest that we don't really believe our own message. Apparently, we don't believe that forgiveness and, and reconciliation through a shared hope and the shared gospel is actually possible. Church, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the message of reconciliation is not just wishful thinking, but that it is the actual power and wisdom of God to save, to restore our broken relationships both with God and with each other? Do you believe that? Well, then it's time, if we believe that, then it's time to turn our resource, turn to the resources that we have in the Lord, and it's time to really accept our role as judges within the kingdom of God. And so friends, as we study this text this morning, what I'd like to do is to highlight three points as we go along. If you wanna look inside your bulletin, you'll see the outline there. We're gonna first consider our delinquency to judge, second, our destiny as judges, and third, our disposition in judgment. So let's begin by looking at our delinquency or our failure to judge. Now. Last week's chapter ended with an exhortation to not judge outsiders, but to instead judge those inside the church. And there we saw that was about a specific case of a particularly egregious sin that they had been tolerating. It was a situation where the church really needed to step up and put into practice what we described as corrective church discipline. And now what we find in our text is Paul expanding this principle of judging insiders to not just egregious sins, but to matters of everyday life, which would include, of course, the personal spats, the personal grievances that we have against each other in the church. And what shocks him, what surprises Paul, as much as the failure to deal with sin among them, is now their failure to deal with interpersonal conflicts among them. Listen to verse one. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So apparently a Christian had defrauded another brother in the church. Now, we don't know the exact nature of, of his offense, but verse 7 would suggest that one brother must have defrauded the other. So he must have cheated him out of money in some way or another. And so instead of resolving this personal spat within the church, the aggrieved brother takes this matter to the courts. He takes this to the civil magistrates. Now in those days, what you would do is that you would take the matter to the judgment seat that was located 
in the center of the marketplace. You would go to the city's agora, a public open space, and you would present the matter to the magistrate. And so the point being here is that this was a very open and public space. And so what, what would have just started off as a personal, private dispute between two brothers in the church would now become a very, very open and public matter. The English translation of, of verse one really has a hard time of capturing Paul's disgust that these church members would do this. The word dare in that sentence, the word dare is actually emphatic in the Greek, meaning it's the very first word in this rhetorical question. It's as strong as if Paul were to have said, how dare you? How dare you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That's how strongly he feels about this. Now, I know it's difficult for modern readers to share Paul's disgust, to share his horror here, because going to court is just so common for us in this litigious age. Well, what's so bad about that? Well, what is Paul so worked up about? What is he so concerned with? Now, some point to his description of pagan judges as the unrighteous, and they would suggest that, well, he's concerned with the corruption of the judges. He's, he's saying, don't go to the courts because you're not going to find justice there. They're, they're all corrupt. But notice how at the end of verse 6, he substitutes the unrighteous with now the term unbelievers. And so I think it's likely he's using unrighteous in verse 1 to simply describe those who are outside of the kingdom of God, just like he does later on in verse 9. So what the point I'm saying, making here is that Paul's concern is not with the judge's integrity. It's not even with the judge's faith. I mean, this could be even a Christian judge that you're going to, and Paul would still feel the same way. The concern here is that you're not bringing your grievances to the church. Instead, you're going to the courts. You're not seeking counsel and mediation among your fellow saints. You're seeking to resolve it among unbelievers. Now, friends, I, at this point, I, I think it's important for us to clarify something. It's important for us to stress that Paul is not suggesting that Christians should avoid the courts altogether. Okay, so let's, let's hear that. He is not categorically opposed to Christians going to court to seek justice. I think, sadly, this particular text has been misapplied to discourage Christians from relying on the legal system altogether, which has resulted in horrifying attempts to cover up criminal behavior within the church. I mean, just think about all of the sex abuse scandals found in both the Catholic and, and evangelical circles. We say it's because we, we don't want to tarnish the name of Christ by airing out our dirty laundry. We say that's the motivating reason, but but really, all we've done is just to misread the text, and we have misapplied it to cases involving criminal behavior, which should go public, which should go to law. The language that Paul uses in this chapter actually makes it clear that he is focused on personal disputes between individuals. I mean, just look how he calls it a grievance in verse 1, or trivial cases in verse 2, or in verse 5, he describes it as a dispute between two brothers. So friends, we are dealing here, obviously, clearly, with a case of civil matters. This is not a criminal case. 
Paul has made it clear elsewhere in Scripture, in his other letters, that the state is the one who is ordained to handle matters of criminality. You go to Romans 13 or, 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 or uh, Peter in his letter, his first epistle, 1 Peter 2 affirms that it is the state that has that responsibility when it deals with crime. Here, we're dealing with a personal dispute, likely over money or over property. The plaintiff is suing in civil court in order to rectify the wrong through, through hopefully some sort of financial compensation. That's what we're dealing with here in this text. And, and notice with me as well that Paul's concern is not with the courts per se. Notice how his main concern is with the church. It's with any church that shirks its own responsibility to judge personal disputes between its own members. The, the rest of the rhetorical questions that you read in verses 2 to 6, notice how they're all directed not at the man who brings the lawsuit, but they're all directed at the church for not handling the, these matters internally. L listen again to verses 4 to 6. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes the law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So Paul is shaming them for their failure to resolve these disputes among themselves within the church. These Corinthians, as we've already seen, are arrogantly boasting about their spiritual maturity, how they have all this spiritual wisdom. But what does it say about you if no one in the church is wise enough to settle a dispute? A church's inability to resolve disputes between two members exposes the immaturity of all the members. So we should be ashamed of what lawsuits among us would say about us, about our immaturity as a church. But notice how Paul is particularly concerned about the fact that these lawsuits are being brought up before unbelievers. Look at the end of verse 6. Now think about that. Why would it be shameful to lay out these kinds of cases before unbelievers? Well, it's not for reasons that you might think. Yes, it does have to do with shame. Yes, it does have to do with saving face, but it's not our face that we're trying to save. It's not our name or our reputation that we're worried about. It's Christ's. We're trying to save his face. We're worried about his reputation, his name. That's our concern. If we as a church can't resolve our own disputes what does it say about Jesus' message of reconciliation? What does it say about our gospel? To our shame, it would suggest that our gospel is ineffective, that it, it is incapable of resolving conflict, that it has no power to actually bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what it would say. That's what's at stake, guys. We don't want to bring our disputes before secular courts because we don't want to tarnish the gospel and our gospel witness. We'd rather, we'd rather show the world that we're not perfect. We've got our disagreements. We've got our fair share of conflict. But at the same time, 
We've got a message of reconciliation that can bring disputing parties to the table and not just come away with a settled upon agreement, but to come away with relationships healed and fellowship restored. That is the power of the gospel. And as a church, that's what we want to demonstrate to the watching world around us, that we have that kind of gospel entrusted to us that we want to give to you. That's what we want to do as witnesses for our king. So church, my point is that Paul is less concerned with what you shouldn't be turning to, that is, the courts, and he's so much more concerned with what you should be turning to, that is, to each other and to the resources that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I I realize that while you may get that point generally, I, I, I realize some of you are probably still wondering if it is wrong to ever file a lawsuit against another Christian because perhaps you're right now facing an unresolved situation that has escalated to the point where seeking legal relief seems to be the logical next step. And so you're probably wondering, okay, I I get the bigger principle, but but Jason, can Christians ever sue? Is that okay? Or is it always forbidden according to Scripture? Well, let's be careful not to create more restrictions than what God's word prescribes. Uh, Otherwise, if we start creating more rules, then we're going to end up making the same mistake as the Pharisees. So I wouldn't make a blanket prohibition against any Christian being involved in any lawsuit. I think that's, that's too broad for this text. But what we can say is that Christians in the same church should not rely on lawsuits for relief. Instead, they should rely on the church and its right exercise of corrective church discipline. That's how this passage fits with the context of what we saw last week. Now, so think about this. Let's say the dispute is between two Christians who have no personal relationship with each other. They're just complete strangers. They just happen to both be Christians. Or that they are in two different churches where there really is no recourse to church discipline. Then in that situation, it could get to the point where a lawsuit may be the best way forward. And I'm sure there are other unique situations where a lawsuit may be justifiable. In in those situations, you're just not going to have a black and white you know, clinch your verse saying, do this, do that. In those cases, you're going to have to rely on godly wisdom, which is what our First Corinthians has been talking about, godly spiritual wisdom to determine the best way forward in those kinds of situations. So the particulars of every case are going to be different, but the overriding biblical principle remains the same. And so you should always be asking yourself, will Christ still be honored? And will his gospel still be magnified if I were to pursue this matter in court? Have I exhausted all other options? Are there any other recourses besides going to court? The whole point here is that Christians should be quick to forgive, quick to reconcile, and slow to sue. That's the principle. And that's how we've seen so far that this principle is not being carried out in the church in Corinth. They have 
shirked their responsibility. They have been delinquent to judge. Well, at the same time, they have also relinquished authority. They have shirked responsibility and relinquished authority. The church has been entrusted with an authority to speak on the behalf of the king and his kingdom, and that is what Paul wants to remind them of. He wants to remind them that you have a duty and a destiny as judges. This leads to our second point here. So look back with me at verse 2. Paul's point is that if one day you're going to judge the world, then Christians, you surely can handle cases that are dealing with worldly matters. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So this here is what we would call an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you have figured out calculus, well, then surely you are competent to handle some arithmetic, right? I mean, that's the logic here. We get that. That's how Paul is arguing. And so what he's referring to when he says that the saints will judge the world, he's referring to the Bible's teaching that at the end of this age, when all things wrap up, the Lord is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And at that time, the saints, that is referring to anyone who is in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. We are going to be joining Christ in exercising his judgment and rule over the world. That's what the Bible teaches. Listen, for example, to Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, which describes the struggles that the church will face until, quote, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So there the prophecy says that one day when we possess the kingdom, judgment will be given for us to exercise. Now what is that exactly going to look like in us exercising judgment with the king? That's unclear. But if we are going to one day judge the world, then that means we are more than competent to adjudicate personal disputes between us. Disputes that, of course, in the end are trivial compared to the eternal matters that we're going to be dealing with one day. And what's more, the Bible teaches that the people of God will one day participate even in the judgment of angels. Listen to verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, he's likely referring to judging fallen angels. There, there's a few places in Scripture that describe these angels that fell with Satan during his rebellion at the beginning of creation. And now we're told that they are being held in captivity, awaiting a judgment to come at the very end of the age, at the end of history. And so as before, the details of, 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 of what our involvement is going to look like are unclear, but Paul's point is this. If you're going to one day judge angels, then certainly you can judge your fellow church members. If you're going to judge matters pertaining to the next life, then how much more competent are you to judge matters related to this life? That's his argument. That's his logic. Now, friends, I, I get it. If even still, you don't feel very competent to judge, 
to get involved in these kinds of personal grievances and disputes. I get it if you don't enjoy mediating. It feels like more like meddling to you, and, and you don't want to you don't want to be involved. You don't want to you don't want to get into the middle of someone else's argument. I, I get it. And so when Paul points to your destiny, your future vocation as cosmic judges, I'm not surprised if that intimidates you more than it inspires you to to want to resolve conflicts among your fellow church members. But this, of course, is the advantage of preaching through the whole book of 1 Corinthians rather than just randomly jumping into 1 Corinthians 6 all of a sudden because all those chapters we looked at earlier All those chapters that we've already studied provide the necessary context to understand and to appreciate Paul's attempt here to encourage believers to embrace their role and their calling as judges. Remember how we saw earlier in chapters 1 and 2 how Paul insisted that the true power and the true wisdom is found not in man but found in the message of Christ crucified. And as believers in Christ, that power and that wisdom is at your disposal through the Holy Spirit that is in you. That was was what Paul was arguing in previous chapters. He says even at the end of chapter 2 that as Christians, you have the mind of Christ. You have all the wisdom that you need. So friend, don't shy away from that conflict that's brewing within your small group. Don't don't shy away from that spat that that is growing between your friends. If you see that, that conflict, you see that division forming, don't shirk your responsibility. Don't second guess your ability. In Christ, you have what it takes to handle disputes in your church in your community, both now and into the future. That's what Paul is trying to encourage us to see. So we've considered our delinquency to judge, our destiny as judges. Now let's consider our disposition in judgment. In other words, let's look at the heart attitude that, should, that you should have whenever you do get involved in interpersonal conflicts with someone else in the church. This is mentioned for us here in verse 7. If you look there, Paul's rebuking the Corinthians for a particular disposition. That is, the disposition to want to win. They want to win this case. They want to be vindicated. They want to be proven right. They are willing to take their opponent to court in order to get that win. But Paul says, Whether you win or lose that case, you've already lost by the sheer fact that you sued a fellow church member. Listen to verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a loss. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You're so keen on winning that you don't realize you've already lost. You've allowed your self-centered disposition to bring shame upon yourself, upon your church, and more importantly, upon Christ and his name, which the two of you bear. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Wouldn't that be the better approach? Wouldn't that be the more Christ-like disposition? 
to refuse, to retaliate, to willingly be defrauded? Isn't that what Christ would do? Paul is channeling here, really, the ethical teachings of Christ that we find in the Gospels. To turn the other cheek. Jesus is, in fact, the one who said, if anyone sues you and takes your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Don't fight back. Don't retaliate. Whenever you suffer, suffer evil, Christian, you have a choice to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. That's what Christ would have us do. That's the Christian ethic of non-retaliation. Now, let's be honest. That can feel unrealistic, right? That can feel unreasonable. It might even come across as naive. Isn't that just perpetuating victimhood? I mean, just allowing them to just keep coming at us? You know, in this day and age, even, even Christians are largely driven by a self-serving, self-protecting ethic. You don't know what he did to me. I, I can't let her get away with that. He needs to learn his lesson. Those are the thoughts that we're thinking whenever we're dealing with conflict. And friend, I, I, I get it. I, I, I know I may not fully understand what that person did to you. I may not fully grasp the wrong that you have suffered. But Paul's point here is that there is someone who does. Someone who suffered the greatest wrong, the highest injustice, and yet he never sought to get even. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 23. See, Jesus could suffer the greatest wrong, dying on the cross in our place because the scripture says he trusted God the Father to be a just judge who will vindicate the righteous according to his timing and in his way. And that's why Christ felt no need to defend himself before his accusers. That's why he felt no need to vindicate himself before the civil magistrates, before Pontius Pilate. He had the strength. He had the power to silently suffer because he entrusted his life into the hands of him who judges justly. Friends, this is the gospel hope. This is the gospel power that no human court could ever offer you. Civil courts, sure, they can make a legal ruling. They can award monetary damages. They can resolve a dispute but they are powerless to restore a relationship. They're incapable of addressing the heart issues behind your conflicts. Courts cannot help you break free of the very sin patterns that led to your conflict in the first place. But the church can. Oh, the church can because we have been entrusted with the gospel with all of its promises and all of its demands. And Paul makes the gospel's demands clear in verses 8 to 10. He says the gospel calls all sinners to repent of their sin. 
to turn away from their sin and to no longer be defined by it. In verse 8, Paul directs his attention to the brother who did the defrauding and by extension to anyone in the church who continues in sin without repentance. He says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to offer us Yet another vice list, a sin list that's quite common in his letters. He goes on to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, there, there, there are actually two individuals being described there um, in that one phrase. And in verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so you add up all of that, especially that one phrase about men who practice homosexuality, referring to two individuals, that's 10 types of sinners right there if you add that up. 10 types of sinners listed for us. It's not an exhaustive list. It's not even particularly clear why he highlighted these 10. And if you think about it, well, mentioning thieves, the greedy, and swindlers may relate to this particular case of defrauding. Uh, the mention of drunkards might relate to what he's going to say later on in chapter 11 about their abuse of the Lord's Supper. And the first five sinners in verse 9, they all seem to relate to sexual sin. And that's going to flow pretty seamlessly into what Paul's going to bring up in the second half of chapter 6. So that's possibly why he's highlighting these 10. The bottom line, his point is, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can live in unrepentant sin in any of these ways and still think that you're in the kingdom of God. By consistently behaving like an outsider, like the unrighteous, you're signaling that you're actually still outside of the kingdom. I think the point here that he's trying to get at is that we as a church need to keep our focus on the sin that is always lurking behind any kind of interpersonal conflict between us. So you see, if you're only concerned with what you're owed, if you're only concerned with defending your name in court, then you're likely going to ignore what's going on in your soul. The church is so much better, so much better equipped to handle these kinds of conflict because not only can we help you pursue righteousness to pursue a just outcome, more importantly, we can address the matters of the heart beneath your conflict. And we can call all parties involved to come to repentance and to come to the table for reconciliation. A gospel-centered community can remind two disputing church members of their shared hope in Christ, of their shared hope in the gospel. We can remind you of the gospel promises that Paul recounts for us in verse 11. Look there in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see Paul trying to motivate us like he similarly did in last week's text? There in last week's text, we saw how he 
he told us to remove the sinful leaven, to remove sin from among your community, from among your church, not so that if you were to do that, now you can become a holy church, now you can become unleavened. No, he said, you do that because you already are unleavened. You are already are holy. You already are saints. That was the way he argued and the way he motivated us. So in the same way, he's saying that those who willfully persist in the sinful behavior he just described won't inherit the kingdom. And that would have accurately described some of you in the church, but not anymore. Not anymore. You are not what you once were. You are now in Christ. You're something different. And so you can start living that way. Living like who you are in Christ. Friends, the hope of genuine life change, it can't be found in the law. It can't be found in going to the courts. It can only be found in the gospel of grace, which of course is the business of the church. That's why you go to each other. Now, now, now let's think about how this, this gospel hope would actually make a huge difference when you're trying to reconcile two disputing members in a church who both claim to have that shared hope. You can remind those two people. You can remind those two brothers or the two sisters, whoever it is, you can remind them that in the name of your common Lord Jesus Christ, and by the regenerating power of the Spirit of God, the two of you have been equally washed clean of the sin that marked your former life. And you have been equally sanctified and set apart to be holy witnesses for Christ in this, in this dark and pagan world. And you have been equally justified in Christ. That means in your king's eyes, both of you, are looked upon as equally righteous, not, not because of your own achievement, but only because of the free gift of Jesus' own righteousness, which is counted as yours and as yours and as yours and as for anyone who puts his or her trust in Jesus. Christian, if that gospel promise is your only hope in life and death, then why would you withhold that same hope from a fellow Christian whom you just so happen to be in a disagreement with right now? By resisting the efforts to get the two of you to reconcile, by holding on to your bitterness and resentment, by, by weaponizing their faults so that you can use it against them, do you see what you're essentially doing? You're taking their sinful offenses, those sins, that Jesus died for, that, that he washed clean with his blood, and it's like you're trying to, to wipe off the blood of Jesus in order so that you can use that sin in your argument against a fellow Christian. It's like you're telling Jesus, okay, so, so, sorry, sorry, Jesus, but, but can, you please, can you please get your blood off of this offense because I, I, I need this right now. I, I need to use it to, to throw it back at this person. I need, it, I need it in my efforts to prove that I'm right, to prove that, 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 that I, I, can, I can vindicate my name. Do, do, do you see what's happening? You see how selfish that really is? I mean, it's borderline blasphemous. 
It's like you're denying the blood of Christ and its power to forgive, specifically to forgive your opponent's sin. This, my friends, is why two Christians at odds with each other need to bring that disagreement to the church, to fellow Christians, not simply just turning to the courts for relief because only the church has the authority and the answer that the two of you really need. Once you realize that your opponent is washed and sanctified and justified just like you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God, that is gonna change the dynamic of this conflict because it's gonna change you and change your disposition towards your opponent. You're no longer enemies. Such were some of you, but now you're brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's start living like it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and its important reminder, the exhortation that it calls for us to live out the gospel, to live out the message of reconciliation, starting within our own community, among our own relationships here in the church. Oh God, give us the power, the power that's found in the blood of Jesus and his righteousness to do this very thing. For your namesake, for your glory, in Jesus' name.